Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. So I really enjoy doing this podcast. Um, I'm a little bit insecure that you don't feel the same way. So I've been I've been kind of trying to figure out if I can predict when you're going to drop out. Oh, do you have a big data set of how long podcast hosts last? Well, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's one of the problems. The other problem is uh, there's only one of you. Uh, so actually, maybe we'll take a step back and uh, talk about what I'm talking about. You are listening to Linear Digressions. Okay, so there's there's some fancy term for what I'm what I'm talking about, which is marketers call it churn, right? The rate at which users might leave a particular service or people might choose to leave something. Marketers call it churn. Epidemiologists call it survival analysis because they're usually interested in how long, say someone has a certain disease, how long until this person dies. Mm, that's or a bit more serious. <laughs> suffers a relapse. Yeah, yeah. Some kind of important event. Um, also, social scientists study it. They call it event history modeling. And they study things like there's this war that's just started. How long do we expect this war to last? So yeah, studies mm. of duration. How long do we think that people are going to be in a certain state, like at war, until there's some important event that then signals the end of that state? And so in this case, it would be, how long is Katie going to keep doing the podcast with me and teaching me cool data science things? Well, I'm going to stick around for a while. But uh, yeah, if you wanted to do some data science to back that up, uh, we can talk <laughs> about that. <laughs> sure, sure. So there are a few things that are kind of tough about survival analysis. One is that usually when you're doing a survival analysis, imagine that you're the scientist who's in charge of collecting the data for this. Let's say for the sake of concreteness that you're studying cancer relapses. Okay. So you have a, a set of patients who had cancer. They've received treatment. They're now in remission. And one of the things that happens, unfortunately, with cancer quite frequently is that then you can have the cancer come back some period of time later. And so what you're interested in studying as a scientist is how long do you have in remission and, and who should we sort of be paying extra special close attention to in particular because we think that they have a higher chance of relapsing. Right. And so we're talking about not one particular individual, but if we take a very large population, we can make uh, conclusions about certain kinds of individuals, not necessarily an individual one person, but a group, let's say males versus females or people who have had cancer before versus people for who, for whom it's their first time struggling with it. Well, so the way that you actually figure out what the relationships are between particular features of interest like your gender or your health status or things like that, you train and find those relationships using big sets of data like you do like you would any regression. But then you can take the form of that regression and, and apply it to an individual person's case and say like, okay, I understand all these relationships. Now for this individual person, what's my best guess of mm. how long they're gonna how long they're gonna last. So yeah, it's a it's really similar to linear regression or logistic regression. But there are a few things that make this kind of analysis tricky that just a regular linear regression or logistic regression can sometimes give you trouble. One of the most important is what's called censoring. And so let's go back to the idea of the scientist who's running the cancer study. So there are a number of things that can mess up that scientist's data collection process. Uh, so let's imagine that scientist starts with 100 people who've had cancer, they've received the treatment, they're now in remission. 
First thing that can happen is you can have what's called left censoring, which is that there are a number of people who are potentially of interest in this study, people who had cancer, but who haven't even made it to the starting line of the study. Like, for example, maybe they didn't go into remission or for whatever reason they decided not to actually enter the study. So depending on exactly what the structure of the data might be, like, for example, let's suppose that those are people who never went into remission, then there's going to be this important dependence maybe on what kind of cancer you had, whether you went into remission or not, and whether you even enter the study in the first place. So if you say, oh, I really understand what your chances are of going into remission or staying in remission with this cancer, you've actually excluded potentially a fairly important part of your data set. And that can, depending on exactly what kind of conclusion you're going to draw, that, that can be a problem. So that's that's called left censoring. Yeah, that, seem, that seems pretty tricky. Um, it It does raise the question, the name of that raises the question, is there a right censoring? There is a thing called right censoring. Right censoring is actually probably even more important than left censoring. And right censoring is where there's a case that lasts all the way through the duration of the study and is still going strong at the end. And how do you deal with that structurally in the analysis that you're doing. So in our cancer example, what that would mean is that if I'm the researcher, I might have the resources to run my study for a year. And I have a certain population that I start out with. And then at the end of the year, a fraction of them is still with me, hopefully a significant fraction. And for sure, I don't want to say that at the end of a year, that the survival time for those people is just they're cut off, right? Mm, Because it's important to me for the analysis that I understand that they're continuing on and it's not like they all just die at the end of a year. But if I just cut them off, that's that's the effect that, that it has on the analysis and that can have all I kinds see. of bad effects. And then another thing that can be really important is people just drop out of studies. And this happens all the time is I might start out my study with a thousand people and let's say a hundred of them relapse with their cancer and Let's say that another hundred of them just drop out, like I lose touch with them, they move away, they become no longer interested in doing this, they forget, whatever. And that can be really difficult as well, is is what are the survival times that I assign to those people? Now, if I say that they all just experienced a relapse in cancer, then obviously that's going to give me a data set that is perhaps gives me a, an overly pessimistic idea mm-hmm. of how long people last. On the other hand, I can't treat them like they've just lived happily ever after because I don't know that either. So that's another thing, a a very practical concern with these survival analyses is just sometimes you lose track of people. So then I guess one way to to understand this is if you have a timeline uh, where time is on the x-axis, then left censoring is the people who don't, who, who aren't included on the left side of the timeline. And right censoring is people who drop out on the, uh, let's say, at the end of their timeline, as you understand it, or at the end of the entire study, they're still there. Yeah. So there are a few ways that you can deal with this. One is you can just put your data set into a regular regression or a logistic regression, which is a type of classifier. It's just that you have to be very careful about these censoring issues and make sure that if, for example, someone drops out of a study, you don't erroneously think of them as, for example, having experienced a relapse event. But there's also a class of models that are specifically designed for this type of structure in the data, for this type of analysis. And the most prominent one, I would say, is what's called a Cox proportional hazards model. 
And a Cox proportional hazards model has kind of an interesting structure. So what it does is it assumes that there's something called a baseline hazards rate. The hazard rate is the proportional likelihood of someone experiencing the event at any given point in time. So if I have, for example, a, a constant 10% hazard rate, and I start with 1,000 people in my study, then in the first time period, I have a 10% attrition. That's my hazard rate. So I'm down to 900. And then in the next time period of the study, I lose 90 people because I have a 10% attrition mm-hmm. and, and so on. So it has this sort of exponential structure. That would just be an example of, of what a hazard rate might actually look like. And a Cox proportional hazards model assumes that there's some baseline hazard rate, which I don't necessarily know the shape of. I don't know if I have some exponential function or maybe there's a hazard rate that starts out low and then goes up. It sounds like if you were to buy something new and shiny and then after some period of time, it becomes not new and shiny anymore. So your your hazard rate, the rate at which you might throw, a population might throw it away for example, would be very low at the beginning of the time period, but get higher as time wears on. Yeah. So there's a lot of different shapes that these hazard rates can take on. And in general, that's not something that you're going to be able to know a priori. That's something that you have to be kind of flexible about. And a Cox proportional hazards model says, okay, I don't know what the baseline hazards rate is, but I can make a statement about for each individual, how much more or less likely they are than the baseline. So they have the same shape as the baseline, but it's kind of moving up and down by some constant amount. And that constant amount is the amount that I can solve for using the characteristics of that individual person, like how old they are and what their health state is. Oh, that's really fascinating. So so basically you're saying that everyone will have roughly the same curve, uh, which is based on the thing that it is. Uh, It could be buying something new and shiny. It could be something else. But their propensity to drop out might be stronger or weaker depending on something to do with them. Yeah, and so that's why it's called a proportional hazards model is because it's solving for sort of the proportional hazard that you have by virtue of the fact of your features as the individual person that you are. Oh, that's really neat. So that's exactly what allows you to do per-person prediction when you know the shape of an entire population. And you might be able to look at specific things about that person to determine how much more likely or less likely than the population. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting the way that the mechanics of the Cox model work. The advantage that a Cox model gives you is a lot of flexibility with respect to the shape of your baseline hazards rate. And the way that it does this is that it solves for what's called a partial likelihood function. And sometimes you hear about a maximum likelihood function or a maximum likelihood regression. And so if we were to use a maximum likelihood estimator for something like a survival analysis, then the information that we would feed into the survival analysis would be all the people who are participating in our study and all of the features that we think are relevant and also the time that each one of them lasts. But that's not what a Cox model does. What a Cox model does is it says, don't tell me the time, the amount of time that they lasted, but give me just the order in which they drop out. And Mm, what that gives mm -hmm. you is it gives you a lot of flexibility with respect to the baseline hazard rate. So now the baseline hazard rate has whatever shape it has and, and you don't have to worry about that as much. But the price that you pay is that then because you're only 
looking at the ordered data, you're not looking at the absolute values of how long each person lasts. That means that the output of a Cox model is also just going to be ordered data. It's not going to be how long you expect each person to last, unless you have a way for solving for the baseline hazards rate. In its purest form, what a Cox model will give you is not how long do I think this person is going to last, but it's here's a list of everyone in my study and and the rank ordered list of how long I think each of them is going to last. Okay, that makes sense. So that, that gives you an idea of within this population who is likely to last a shorter amount of time versus a longer amount of time. And you can use that data in other contexts to make other predictions. Yeah. So in the context of cancer, for example, what it might find is that people who are older and who are in worse health are at a greater risk of their cancer coming back. And it won't necessarily say for this person who is the oldest and is in the poorest health, we know how long that's going to be. It's going to be two weeks or something, who knows? It's just going to say, this is the person who we think is the most likely to have the first relapse. And then the the next person in terms of who's the most at risk for a relapse is going to be this other person who's maybe a little bit younger or in slightly better shape. And so it's going to order them in, in that respect. And so there's always this uncertainty, again, in, as a Cox model in its purest form of exactly how long that period of time will be. But especially if your job is just to keep an idea, for example, if you're to use the marketing analogy, I'm looking at the list of all my customers and who do I think is at the highest risk of leaving next? Mm. Who do I want to reach out to? Then this gives me an idea of, you know, I, I take my list and I just take the top whatever percent and those are the people that I mail them a coupon or whatever. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So so even though just the raw output isn't necessarily predictive in terms of like how long will the customer stay with me or how long will this uh, patient last? But it can be very useful uh, in a lot of contexts, just on its own without the predictive uh, time element of it. Yeah. And if you want to make a dedicated study, there are ways of estimating the baseline hazards rate. So I don't want to act like this is an intractable problem. Right. But there's sort of this trade-off with the Cox model, which is that you get this flexibility about the baseline, but that means that the inputs to your model are going to be the orders in which people drop out. And that means that you're just sort of like missing some of that absolute information about how long people last when you want to get estimates back out. That's cool. Um, Keep doing the podcast with me, will (laughs) you? You got it. This is fun. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at lineardigressions.com and katie at lineardigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at lindigressions. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.